Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Philippians and what it looks like to live a joy-filled life in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining my co-host Aaron and me in conversation today are Julie Hanna and Debbie Hawkins. And Julie, will you tell us just a little bit about how you and Debbie know one another? Debbie and I know each other through church, and years ago, Debbie taught Jacob, my son, and my daughter Molly uh, in Sunday school, and was just a sweet blessing. And then fast forward, gosh, 15 years or so, and we're in Bible study together right now, studying Philippians and enjoying that very much. Because, Debbie, you've been teaching kiddos for a long time. How many years have you been doing that? Well, in the morning, 20-some years. Wow. Kay and I talked about it the other day, and we think the first group we had on Sunday morning, maybe our 25 married, some of them. Wow. Maybe even a little Plus older. Nuts. Well, we appreciate, all of us mamas appreciate. It's a privilege. Yeah. Well, let's do our first things first question, and I'm going to ask you the question, and then you're going to give a brief bio on yourself at the same time as you answer the question, okay? So the first things first question is, what is the first friendship you can remember developing as a result of working together towards a common goal? And Julie, you get to kick us off. Okay, so I have two children, Jacob, uh, who is at Middle Tennessee State University. He's a sophomore there. And then Molly, who is a freshman at Samford University in Birmingham. I'm married to Aaron. And I have really been a stay-at-home mom for the past 20 years or so. But prior to that, did a little with special ed and speech therapy. And then since both kids have left, I've been doing a little part-time work at Aaron's office, just helping with some organization. Okay, you're leaving out one of the most important things about you. And that is the fact that you are an amazing baker. Oh, right. Well, I'm, I'm not saying right. I'm an amazing baker, but I do love to bake. Mm-hmm. That's defi- a definite hobby of mine. I love baking. It's kind of relieves some stress and then I get to enjoy eating it as well. Well, your pound cake is John, my husband's one of his all time favorites. And the last time Julie made us a pound cake, we ate more than we should, and then we cut it up into chunks, and we put it in the freezer, and we would take it out at intervals and have it for breakfast, and it is amazing. She's a very good baker. She doesn't give herself enough credit, but she really is. All right, so first friendship that you can remember, Julie, around a common goal. Okay, so I thought way back to third grade. For my birthday that year, I got a grease tape, the soundtrack to Greece, and I brought it to school and showed it to one of my classmates, Jenny, and we both agreed that it would be a really good use of our time to start a Greece club. Um, so we took it very seriously. We made a folder with stickers and rules and important information <laughs> about Olivia Newton-John <laughs> and John Travolta. We even made a little pin uh, to wear that I think Jenny's an artist. She drew Olivia Newton-John's face on the pen. Wow, that's good for third grade. Yeah, she's very talented. Um, And then, of course, we had to meet regularly to come up with dances for all the songs. Then really the only other member in the group was her younger sister, Anna. But it was a cool group. But anyways, that kind of brought us together, something fun to work on. And 40 years later, we are... Maybe not still. I mean, I guess you could say we're still in the Grease Club, but (laughs) our friendship has evolved to be more than just about our club. 
Well, the question is whether you still know the dance moves and whether you can still recite the rules. Well, I don't know about the rules, but we can sing just about all the words to the songs and remember some of the dance moves. Okay. How fun. I love that. We want proof of that later. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) What about you, Debbie? My name is Debbie Hawkins, married to Michael. We have two married children, Michelle married to Mark and Jeffrey married to Lauren. And we're blessed with five adorable grandchildren who are tons of fun. So that takes up some of our time. I'm a nurse by profession. I volunteer at Christ Community as a diabetes educator, and it is a privilege to partner with that ministry. I uh, love spending time with family and friends. Um, When I'm needed to help, I enjoy that too. So I often will help with grandkids or go back and forth to Arkansas to help with my mom. I enjoy reading, and um, I do love spending time studying the Bible on my own, and but especially with a group of women. Mm-hmm. I love to do that. Mm-hmm. As far as the first friendship, uh, working toward a common goal, immediately came to my nursing school. I entered barely 18 years old and um, for some reason became friends with Glenda, who um, had already been in college for three years, but transferred to the nursing program. So we started studying together and practicing assessments on each other, making care plans. And uh, the program we were in seemed to pride itself in their dropout or failure rate. So we were determined to succeed, which... We did. She became a dear friend, and 48 years later, we're still in touch, and we can curl up on the couch and visit just like back then. She had a car and an apartment, and I was, you know, like barely working my th- way through school in the dorms, so that was always fun to to go there and study, but mm-hmm. sweet memories. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this is probably not accurately my first friendship. And I also try to brainwash my kids into your siblings are your best friends. So if we're not going to count siblings, because I definitely remember building some killer forts with the brothers growing up, you know, that was a common goal. We had we had rules, Julie, like there were legit rules and I don't know, threats on signs and stuff. But I remember in high school. I played tennis with this girl, and we got this idea that we were going to make fantasy fudge. I also love to bake. And um, there was, if you've ever bought the marshmallow fluff, you know, on the back, it's got fantasy fudge recipe right there on the thing. And so we're like, let's make fantasy fudge and sell it at high at our little local high school. And we did. And every day at lunch, it was like, man, we were raking in the cash. And I guess the principal found out, and we were in big, fat trouble. And so we were banned from selling fudge at the school. But, man, we made a good run of it. It was really fun. And we did become good friends out of that. It was just like we had our sweet little uh lama grease club with Fantasy Fudge. Fantasy Fudge. I don't think I've ever heard of Fantasy Fudge. Oh, girl, go get you some Jet Puff Marshmallow Fluff. It's right there on the package. All right, well, listening to y'all tell those stories, I feel like I'm getting this little Rolodex of those type of friendships through my through my mind julie thinking about my best friend growing up probably around third grade we invented a secret language that was our big thing and that was super fun it was called the ab language i think i've mentioned it on this podcast before i have not made fantasy fudge with anybody aaron but i did have some coming up galentines i did have some friends that we would paint rocks and sell them bless those adults who wanted to buy rocks that children had painted but so cute they would do it i love it so 
Well, the sweetness of friendships around a shared goal, of course, is that you love the same thing and then you grow in your love for each other as you enjoy the love of the thing that you're kind of centered around. And that's a lot of what's going on in the book of Philippians. It is a shared love between the Apostle Paul and the people he is writing to, the Philippian believers. They share a love of the gospel a love in their salvation, and they've shared practical love with one another, the Philippian believers particularly supporting the Apostle Paul. Our last few episodes, we have spent talking about the larger themes in Philippians and also talking about the historical context to the book. So a lot of those things have been covered. Today, we get to jump into the book itself. And just as a reminder, when I say book, what I really should be saying is letter. Uh, This is written as a letter from like I said, the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church it is in God's providence. What he has chosen to preserve is his holy word, fully applicable and helpful to us just as it was to them. And we're going to be talking today from chapter one, verses one through 11. And if you're listening and you haven't read those verses before, I strongly encourage you to pause, read the verses, come back to us because you'll get more out of our conversation if you do. In brief, what's happening in these verses, one through 11, Paul is expressing a deeply held love and appreciation for the Philippians. And as I said previously, it's a love that springs from their shared salvation and the practical help that the Philippians have consistently given to Paul when he went from place to place sharing the gospel and now when he's in prison. We'll see in these verses that Paul's love is coupled with a sure hope that the salvation the Philippians are living out now and displaying so practically will be the same salvation that continues to move them forward as they grow in their knowledge of love towards God, one another, and the world around them. So this salvation, this gospel news, it's front and center right at the beginning of the letter, which is often true for epistles. He usually speaks of the indicative and then the imperative. In other words, what is true and then what to do. And he couches the message that he, of exhortation that he has for the church in a deep and wonderful knowledge of who God is. And so that's a lot of what he's even doing here in these first 11 verses. We're going to see in these first 11 verses that Paul already speaks right out of the gate a lot of who Jesus is. He refers to himself as Jesus' servant. He refers to the Philippians as those who are holy because they are in Jesus. He refers to Jesus as the one who has given grace and peace to the Philippians. He refers to the day of Christ Jesus when we will be perfected body and soul in him and with him. He refers to the affection that he has for the Philippian believers as the affection of Jesus Christ. And he refers to Jesus as the one through whom righteousness and all of its fruits come. So in these first 11 verses, we are heavily couched in the good news of Jesus Christ, the love that springs from that and is shared with one another. So Aaron, talk to us a little bit more about that, that connection uh, between Paul's prayer. We also see a prayer that he gives, very specific prayer here in these first 11 verses for the Philippians. What's the connection between that and the love and thanksgiving he has for them? Yeah, I think a lot of us love Philippians because we open up this book and we and the joy and the love that Paul has for this church. is just, it's in the room. You can't miss it. His I mean, he's just effervescent with love. And we like to read that kind of letter because it reminds us of the love that Christ has had for us. It reminds us of our teachers that have shown us that kind of love from Christ. So I think that it's just always good to revisit this letter and just uh, remember that and just remember Paul's fondness for these people. I think as we see opening up um, the things that kind of are that we can see in that very beginning 
portion of the letter. Um, We know that as Paul gets into the book, he's going to speak to the dissension in the church at Philippi. He's going to speak to their lack of humility, the self-serving attitudes that he sees or he's heard of. And he's even beginning in this very opening passage to address that. He's putting himself and Timothy saying, hey, we are slaves or servants of Christ. We are in this together. There's this level of humility that we are engaging with the gospel for your sakes. And also because we cannot help but like we have known the love of Christ and we cannot help but move towards you in that love. He's using that inclusive language. Like he's saying all the saints at Philippi, like he's saying, remember, we're all in this together. Like those of us that love the Lord, like we're all serving the same master and there's no hierarchy. He's saying here, he's speaking to the, the deacons and the bishops. He's saying that we serve from a posture of humility, knowing the love of Christ, that when we have that level of authority, there comes responsibility. And so I think he's speaking to um, the leadership and all the saints and just reminding them that, hey, this is what undergirds our hope in Jesus is that we've been loved by him. We move toward one another in that love and just reminding them of that shared fellowship. I think some other things that we see there are that confidence in Christ, the community that you mentioned, um, and that community is marked by the overflow of love. And I think that, to me, is just something I've found that I reflect upon often is that it's not our theological study as important as that Bible study time is together with one another. That is not always where we see um, the biggest change. Like when we have known the love of Christ, when we experience His love over us, that's really what moves the needle. Amber and I have sidebarred about this quite a bit. But yes, it's when... The love of Christ is what changes everything for us. When we've known that love, that's when we start moving towards one another in that koinonia love that we see right there in the opening of this letter. And you see, you pick up on this irrevocable joy. Like Paul's sitting in a not great situation. He's in prison. But he reminds us like that joy is not informed by our circumstances, that we have the joy and the hope of Christ. And I think that the end of this just closes out so beautifully that the Christian community is marked by one that verse 10 you pick up that you may approve what is excellent so you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God like he's reminding us that this is all about God's glory that Jesus is first that we are grateful and humble to be a part of his kingdom yeah well and what you're saying right there as far as where that real change happens that bible study or that experience of the overflow of the love of god our sidebar conversation always gets us to the place where we're saying those two things should live side by side well not even really live side by side but be in union with one another because and you see that in paul's prayer here he's saying when he gets to the end of his prayer he's saying expressing that hope that these believers would grow in love towards the lord towards one another and knowledge and depth of insight. And the way that we grow in love is to be able to understand what love really is, what the need really is, who we really are, who other people really are, who God really is. And that does come through scripture. It does come through Bible study because that's God's revelation. We don't have that in and of ourselves. We often arrive to wrong conclusions Mm -hmm. if we start inside and work out. So we need that revelation coming in, but it doesn't just stop with our minds. It does change us. It's, Mm -hmm. It's not, it's, that's why he's praying it. I do love that. Like he's praying, he's asking God to do that work. And at the same time, we are engaged in doing that work as well. There is the mystery of that. We do engage in that work. We do study scripture. We do engage our minds. We do work to grow. And yet the Holy Spirit does that in us in ways that we cannot take credit for. So miraculous and we participate and you mm-hmm. get both of those things. 
that growth and love. Yeah, and it's just such a reminder that our God has been always and continues to be a God with us God. Mm-hmm. That he has come to us, revealed himself, and he's given us his word so that we may know him. Yeah. And we're not left to our own devices to figure it out. Like He's given us insight into who he is. Um, that truly is a beautiful thing. So as he reveals himself to us, like we learn and are able to discern more accurately who we are. So as we see the opening of Philippians and Paul's introducing the fact that he calls himself a servant, he and Timothy are identifying as servants of Christ and the Philippians are saints. Like he's saying, speaking this identity over them that the Lord has told us who we are. So as we consider how he's addressing them, what do we learn about our identity and the identity of other believers? Debbie, kick us off. Well, when I was um, obviously noticing that Paul included Timothy in his greeting as a fellow servant of Christ, setting that tone to convey the joy and thanksgiving for the Philippians partnering with him in the gospel, even in the suffering, and to encourage others to follow that example that Christ gave us. Paul was in the trenches with the Philippians. He was not in a safe house somewhere. Um, He was in the trenches. He was suffering for the gospel and serving Christ just as they were. And he wasn't asking them to do anything that he wasn't already doing and willing to continue doing. So that true partnership was significant, I thought. And referring to the Philippian believers as saints, those sanctified in Christ are referred to as saints in Scripture. So we have those identities and their identities God wants us to embrace and live out. As far as my identity, it took some time, even after coming to faith and having a personal relationship with Christ, to think of myself as a saint, mainly because the denomination I grew up in had very exclusive criteria for sainthood. So that wasn't for everyone. And when I began to study the Bible as an adult, even knowing and believing where my identity was in Christ and knowing God's Word, and that it's unchanging, I had to learn to embrace that I could actually call myself a saint and identify as a fellow saint. Now, it's easier for me to think of myself as a servant with a to-do list because that denomination also had much for me to do to secure my salvation, none of which I ever felt like I had accomplished. Thankfully, now that I'm secure in my faith and my standing before God, Um, and what Christ has done with me. Huge blessing and assurance, get a peace with that assurance. But I will have to admit that, unfortunately, I can still serve in my own strength. My own, I can serve my own desires. Even if I'm doing something good, I can still think I got this. And um, I'm not really living then as a servant of Christ. I'm living as a servant of myself. So in John, it says, my father will honor the one who serves me, and I I need the same action, the same service can be for me or for someone else, depending on where my heart is and where my motives are, and if I'm depending on the Holy Spirit to help me. And um, then I'm truly living as a servant. This idea of slave and servant. While Paul doesn't really get into the weeds in it in Philippians, we can't help but remember like he goes in the weeds in Romans and reminds us that we are only truly liberated when we are serving as slaves to our kind master we know is Jesus. So I think that's just playing in the background for me as we're sitting here talking about that. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it is important to point that out because culturally that is, is so opposite of what we would think that the Mm -hmm. only way to really be free is to be free, to be yourself, not Mm -hmm. to be in any way tied in obligation to anyone else. 
Yeah, yeah that's our mm-hmm. cultural narrative then. It was, or now, it is their cultural narrative then. And we think when we can rule over ourselves or rule and or rule over others, then that's, we've got it made in the shade. Yeah. But this is a whole different narrative when Jesus is saying, no, the, the way of true life is serving and servant leadership. It was nice to see how Paul kind of establishes, you know, just what he is about, what his life is centered on. I had looked up a definition for servant, and one of them said it's one who gives himself up wholly to the will of another. And so, you know, Paul is establishing that he's all about Christ's will rather than his own. And I love then, you know, he's reminding the Philippians, again, like we said, their identity um, as saints is centered um, in Christ as well, that, again, they just have this common bond and are part of a larger family. I'm, I'm an only child, which I love being an only child. I have a happy family, but I also love being a part of a bigger family with lots of brothers and sisters, you know, in Christ. And so I think it's just a blessing to be united as a family um, in Christ. I think we have just this shared truth and purpose in life that transcends our immediate families, our age, our personality, our political views, just a, a common bond that's beautiful. Well, and even just the definition of saint, I know it, we've we've we tossed that word out, but we didn't really elaborate on the fact that usually when you hear the word saint, you think of somebody either from a religious tradition that's in a picture that looks nothing like you, or somebody who is extraordinary in their spirituality and has somehow ascended to a certain level of sainthood, and you you admire them, but you don't really want to go out to lunch with them, like that kind of person. But that's not what the biblical definition of saint is at all. A saint is just simply somebody who has been set apart as holy to the Lord. They belong holy to the Lord, and we are made that by the work of Christ, not by anything that we've done, but because we literally, like Paul says, we are in him, saints in Christ Jesus. That is what makes us saints. All right, so we have talked about the fact that the Philippians are Paul's dear friends, and they have partnered with him in the work of the gospel for several years, very practically. They are a church that has supported him monetarily. They have sent, at this time when Paul's writing this letter, they've sent one of their own a good long distance to both bring him a physical gift and encourage him spiritually and relationally. They didn't just mail it. I don't think you could probably mail things at that time anyway, but they sent it personally. And so they're giving him that encouragement. They've done it for several years. And they've just shared in that work that he's doing of presenting that good news about Jesus Christ. That is their shared love for one another, that shared work. So what does it look like for y'all to enjoy friendships that are born out of a shared love for Jesus? I was thinking just first, first of all, you know, friendships with other believers are never perfect because, you know, we aren't always the friends that we should be, but they are just a beautiful and necessary means that the Lord uses to point us to our perfect Savior. This list is not exhaustive, but I was just thinking, what are some of the things that might characterize a a friend in Christ? And I was thinking there, there can be just a real commitment for the long haul um, through thick and thin, you know, a continual pursuit of each other, even when I'm maybe not a very fun friend at the time. Prayer, when I don't have the words, just a, a sacrificial giving of your time for one another, sharing scripture, uh, pointing each other 
towards truth. I also thought about sometimes we need some gentle confrontation, you know, when we stray. And I think a good friend who loves me more than the friendship desires what is good for me in Christ, even if it might mean an uncomfortable conversation. And then lastly, just thinking there can be such a deep care and empathy for each other as we hurt when the other one hurts. It's painful. You have an ache when they hurt. Um, But then at the same time, a joy when they're rejoicing in something. And, you know, these friendships develop um, through hard work and through time. And I think as you share life together, you're not only encouraged by God's faithfulness in your own life, but you just have the immense privilege of witnessing His faithfulness in their lives as well. Mm -hmm. What you're describing, there could be friendships that are based on something else, you know, a shared love of a particular work like nursing or a shared love of fantasy fudge or whatever. And you you can have endurance in those, you know, faithfulness, but that union with Christ that we share, our identity and a shared mission brings about some of those deeper things that you're talking about, like in those hard times or when there's times for confrontation or when you're not a good friend or when you're not sure where there's hope. To have friendship bound around a shared faith, a shared belief, a shared salvation, it does work deep into us in ways that a shared love of fantasy fudge can't quite match. Mm-hmm. That was an excellent summary. I, I loved hearing just the way that you're thinking about that. And I, I love that you're bringing out the conflict piece of it. We were having a little conversation in a meeting this morning about how when you have those hard spaces, I think as Christians, we automatic, well, not automatically, I think God grows in a, a love for his image bearers that they have the dignity that he's given them. So we're able to treat other, our fellow mankind with that dignity. But when it's a person who shares the love of Christ, there is just a knitting of our hearts together that is different because we've known that mercy. We've known the mercy and the love of Christ and we are, our hearts are moved toward them in a different way and a different shared love. To me, um, love for Jesus often spills over into serving him and his people and um, I was looking back over on some significant friendships that formed from serving alongside someone. About 35 years ago, not long after moving to Augusta, and it, this was at another church, but I met Kay Harris. I had never really served at a church. I had gone to church regularly, but never had never served at a church. And so began serving in children's ministry, getting to know her as a friend, being in a couple's Bible study with her and her husband, Mike. So Sunday school, ch- women's ministries, and our friendship just grew and developed. So after both of our families ended up at First Pres, Kay and I continued to serve together. And even though our paths don't always cross as often, you know that that friend, you have that bond. It's not in just the task. It's in the love for each other and the love for the Lord. And that has just been a precious start to my serving serving Christ, serving his people. When I was in Bible study fellowship as a children's leader, we were assigned uh, co-leaders each year. And I was blessed some 25 and 22 years ago to serve alongside Patricia Sims and Donna Jones each for a year. And that was such a blessing teaching the little ones, but also praying for each other and getting to know each other in a deeper way through that service. Donna and I became prayer partners for a long time after that, praying for our husbands and families, and that was a a wonderful experience. But 
friendships formed in all variety of ways for me, just through school, helping in a classroom, sitting on the bleachers. And we can't always have a deep connection with everybody we come in contact with. We have sisters in Christ. We know we feel that love through Jesus for each other. So whether friendships are formed by helping in a classroom, teaching in Sunday school, camping overnight on a Pioneer Girls trip in a freezing tent, they can just form in a variety of ways. And many people we want to get to know better. We'd love to be a closer friend with that person. But we have limits. We have many sisters in Christ, but we don't always have the time to form deep friendships. So there's just different types of friendship God gives us, all sweet, all special. Whether we have five minutes to talk about the Lord or each other or what's going on in each other's life or whether we see each other regularly. They're all special friendships. A really special memory was working with another mom many years ago at Westminster. It was a short event, but I really liked her and we had fun and we laughed and our paths crossed periodically over the years as our kids grew older. But um, some years later, my son Jeffrey and her daughter Lauren dated, married, and now Karen and I share two precious grandchildren. So God was sovereign. He knew our friendship would grow one day, and we're family now, and um, that is so precious. So God is good to surprise us in those amazing ways. So for me, it's like a thread. Each friendship has its own thread that's woven through seasons of life, happy times, suffering, fun, laughter, counsel, comfort, lots of prayer. But always we point each other to the Lord and encourage each other in the Lord, and it's very sweet. I know um, Melissa refers to Proverbs 27, 9 in her book, but I love the message says, a sweet friendship refreshes the soul. So if anyone longs for that refreshment and blessing, I'd say to pray for God to guide you to a ministry and where you can partner with someone and be blessed by a new relationship and even a precious friendship. Yeah, I think even as you're sitting here thinking about it, I'm just grateful for the many different friends that the Lord has provided to me and my family. Just how what a gift to see your kids have sweet, strong friendships. And also just knowing that having no expectations on the friendship that also is especially the season of life I'm in. It just is a gift to know that you have friends that love you no matter how the seasons may shift around. All right, so we see here in the letter that as Paul's addressing his friends, he's got this prayer for him at the end. We see in verses 10 and 11 that his his desire, he's praying for them, that their love would grow and abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight so they'd be able to discern what is best and they may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So I think that is something that in my, my highest ambition, I'm like, Lord, help me pray that for my friends every day because I love my friends. I'm grateful for them. Help me to pray those type prayers. So I think that there is this instructive element that is there. And as he's encouraging us, like how is this informing the way that we pray for our friends? And how have you maybe even seen God answer some prayers of the friends in your life as you have prayed for them? 
Well, questions like this can kind of challenge me as a champion overthinker that I am. But for a long time when I read this passage, when I would come across it, so that you may be pure and blameless, just stops me in my mental tracks. I guess because growing up, I never felt or believed I was fully forgiven. So I couldn't really imagine how I was participating in that or how I could ever reach that pinnacle, truly reach that pinnacle on this side of eternity. And even after coming to faith in Christ, trusting in my standing before God, that it was only through his righteousness. These verses state that we can and should participate in that growth, and we can also pray this for others. But to actually become pure and blameless until the day of Christ, that was kind of like a stumbling block for me. But it was helpful when a Bible teacher directed me to Psalm um, 19, 12, and 13, which says, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. And this part especially, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So it isn't perfection. It's sanctification, growing in Christ, depending on the Holy Spirit to help us overcome sin and to keep it from taking over, ruling over our mind, heart, and life and becoming complacent, rationalizing, becoming numb, but redirecting our heart to become more like Christ, to be imitators of God, as it says in Ephesians. So in this letter to the Philippians, Paul was praying for their spiritual growth. They would live a life worthy of Christ, which would need to be a day-to-day prayer. So I try to pray this for myself first, especially with those closest to me. I can easily become focused on others' wrongdoings, ways they may have offended, annoyed me, things that if they had only done or said this or that, things would be better. And then I remember I'm really in the same boat, annoying, offending, failing someone else. So I am in need of a savior moment by moment as well, and the power of the Holy Spirit to help me to accomplish any good decision or success. So instead of pointing out any flaws or giving a list of suggested improvements, which I am a pretty good list maker, I ask God to help them. Just pray for God to help them to love him, to know him better, to follow him, to seek his path. And it also softens my heart too, to where I don't need to speak up about everything. I can pray and pray to God about it. And then to speak in love, gentleness, definitely not in anger. So I I pray this for myself, that I would grow in that love and knowledge and depth of insight for myself. And then I've seen him answer this prayer in my life to help me love him more, to serve him. He gives me a love to help teach God's word to young children. He helps me with discernment when I need it. And I can pray this for other people too. I'm challenged I feel challenged now, especially, to pray this for my family and my friends. Life is so complicated. We don't always know someone else's deepest struggles. It's hard to discern what is best. Prayer requests can't always be succinctly summarized, and we don't really even know always what to pray for. In my Bible, I had written out to the side of this verse, knowledge of God fuels love for God. So if we have the knowledge and we grow in love and intimacy, then he will help us. And we can pray that for friends or family that are going through hard, difficult situations. And God will always bring a blessing because he's always at work in our hearts, minds, and lives. 
and he promises he will carry on to completion the good work that he began in us. So when I was thinking about this question, I was trying to kind of reflect on how I normally pray. And I think I can be tempted to go through the list of the specific prayer requests, which is important, but maybe without that eternal perspective that Paul in Paul's prayer that he has that we're that we're talking about, which is keeping Christ at the center of those prayers. So lifting those requests of others or my, myself up to him in the context of Paul's eternal perspective that he talks about. So for example, if I might pray, you know, Lord, please relieve me or her, a friend from this particular suffering, I might add just simply, Lord, also please let her eyes be fixed on you and the hope that she has in you um, in this suffering. And I've seen those types of prayers answered in the presence of even long suffering. Um, So I just was thinking through, you know, what does that look like where there's a long suffering, where there isn't necessarily an end in sight, um, such as physical healing, and that's just not being answered. And to see Christ produce just the fruit of righteousness that is counterintuitive to the world. So there's a perseverance when the suffering doesn't end, a hope when the world would say it's hopeless. So there's a verse in a song that I just love that I've played over and over again from the song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And the verse that I think of is where it says, I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. And, you know, just that paradox that, yes, there's weakness and pain and rejoicing. Um, and I think Paul speaks to that as well in Second Corinthians 4, where you have the list of, I'm hard-pressed, but not crushed, perplexed, not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. So these paradoxes, I think, are just powerful testimonies of the hope in the gospel, which Paul's prayer is pointing the Philippians to. I love how you're acknowledging the fact that there is that paradox, and we talked about it a lot during Habakkuk, in that there is just the reality, the honesty that God invites us into. He doesn't dismiss that. He wants us to name it. And then that there's also the reality of we have this eternal lens, that Jesus wins, that there is eternal hope, that there is peace even in the chaos of life. There is joy even in the sorrow. So I love that you're naming that even in the context of friendships, because that is just consistent with who we've known God to be to reveal himself through scripture. And it is absolutely one of the themes of Philippians. We titled our study here at First Pres, uh, the study of Philippians. We've given it the little subtitle, Living a Joyful Life of Paradox, because there's so much joy throughout this letter, and yet the circumstances don't lend themselves naturally to a deep and abiding joy. But there is joy in Christ, and it is shared joy with other people. And don't you just love the fact that one of the, I think one of the reasons we love Philippians is because we are sharing it. And what we see there is love and the gospel life lived out, not alone 
even in those hardest of places, but lived with Christ and with his people and the support and encouragement that is there is huge. Julie and Debbie, what a pleasure to have you guys here today as friends and just share with us what you've learned from the study in Philippians. Thank you for joining us. Listeners, we hope that you'll join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you stroll through the grocery store or the next time you make a pound cake or some fantasy fudge. Mm -hmm. Sissy Wheeler and Sue Ames will be joining us to talk about Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 30. We hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again a season of pure shining. To cheer it after the rain 